we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. All of us want a doctor who thinks the patients, not the government or corporations, comes first. Welcome to America Out Loud Pulse. I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton. Today, we're just going to talk about keeping patients first. There's all this stuff in the news and Ukraine and Trump indictment, and this, that, and the other. But our health care is still there. They're trying to kind of put it to the back burner. Meanwhile, bit by bit, little rules and little laws and things change that erode patients' rights. Some years ago, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons wrote a patient bill of rights. And I'm just going to go through that. And I want everybody listening to think about what your rights are and going to a doctor who will observe those rights and demanding them. Patients should be guaranteed the following freedoms. To seek consultation with a physician of their choice. To contract with their physicians on mutually agreeable terms. To be treated confidentially with access to their records limited to those involved in their care or designated by the patient. To use their own resources to purchase the care of their choice. That sounds odd to have to say that, but with some programs, including Medicare, you can't use your own money to refuse medical treatment, even if it's recommended by their doctor, to be informed about their medical condition, the risks and benefits of treatment and appropriate alternatives, to refuse third-party interference in their medical care, and to be confident that their actions in seeking or declining medical care will not result in third-party imposed penalties for patients or physicians. To receive full disclosure of their insurance plan in plain language. Now, some of these things are the contracts. What's the contract between the physician and the healthcare plan, what's the contract between the patient or employer in the plan? A lot, there's a lot of uh, what read between the lines and all those, and a lot of fine print, and patients have to know. So you aren't blindsided suddenly when you try to make a claim, and then they say, oh, well, we don't cover that. Patients have to know whether there's any incentives involved in these contracts, whether the physicians are offered financial incentives to reduce treatments or ration care. And the cost, patients need to know the full cost of the plan. That's co-payments, co-insurance and deductibles. Sometimes something looks good on the surface and then lo and behold, you have a huge co-insurance coverage, you need to know exactly what's covered, not where it's kind of sneaky. Oh, well, that's experimental or 
you can't do this or you can only get that treatment once every month or whatever it might be. You need to know that up front. And then we need to know the qualifications of the doctors who are on their roster. And very importantly, and we're going to talk about this later today, is the authorization procedures for services. Are there committees? Are there doctors? Some places, and in fact, a big lawsuit came out where it shows there weren't even doctors who were examining the cases. So this is something all patients need to know. And then patients need to know referral procedures. They need to know the grievance procedures for appeals. And then finally, they need to know whether a doctor is going to be punished for criticizing the plan. We're going to talk about all this with my guest, Dr. Richard Ammerling. He's a board-certified internist and kidney doctor with over 35 years experience. In 2016, he took a position at St. George's University and taught there till July 2021 when he refused the COVID vaccine. Dr. Ammerling is the past president of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, and he's currently on the board of directors there. Now he is also the chief academic officer at The Wellness Company. Welcome to the show, Dr. Amerling. It's so great to be with you, Dr. Marilyn Singleton, my favorite past president of AAPS. <laughs> In, including yourself, I suppose. No, way beyond myself. <laughs> All right. It is so good to have you here. Let's let's just get down to it. What do you see is happening in medicine and the biggest problem in trying to keep patients first? Marilyn, we are in such bad shape right now that it's very hard to even see a way out. And what caused all this is really the issue, because that's how we get to the bottom of it, is we try to cure as opposed to treat symptoms, as always want to get to the root cause of the problems that we're experiencing. And I trace it all back to a very simple thing, which is the intrusion of third parties into medical care. And all of that started back in World War II when we had wage and price controls. And after the end of World War II, most of the uh, price controls went away with a few notable exceptions, such as rents in Berkeley and New York City. Uh, But also employers during this period to attract and keep personnel offered health benefits, health insurance as a benefit. Now, health insurance was a fledgling business back then, and most people uh, paid for a lot of their care out of pocket, and that was not a huge issue. But when you got a plan instead of wages, right, this was a benefit that was that was included in your total wage package, so you, you suddenly had this incentive to spend money on health care. And when the price controls went away, the tax advantage status of this benefit remained. So that is how we got employer-sponsored health insurance, which was the beginning of the end, if you really want to look at it. 
of uh, good quality medical care. And once third parties got in there, and of course, employers don't buy your homeowner's insurance or your car insurance, do they? So why are they involved in buying your health insurance? It's totally absurd. But this tax break that that gets uh, you your pol- that you get for your policy promotes the use of the service. So we start to have overuse of medical services, and when third parties are picking up the tab, there's less likelihood to be cautious about spending, and that's both that's both on the part of the patient and the physician. And we went from there to ultimately Medicare, Medicaid and the intrusion of government now in a big way into providing health and so-called insurance. And with Medicare in particular, which what started out as a very open-ended insurance program where they just agreed to pay your doctor's bills and your hospital bills, no questions asked, came with increasing numbers of strings attached as costs exploded under this new system. I mean, they were predicted, their predictions were off by a factor of 10, how much Medicare was going to cost after a certain number of years. And this is uh, what what has gone on. The introduction then of the managed care concept back in the uh, 90s, I guess, is when it really started to take off, where you would have, instead of just a doctor taking care of you, you would have to go through a gatekeeper who would decide what you what care you should get, whether or not you're going to get a specialist, whether or not you're going to get a CT scan or an MRI. And this third-party payment system is, is what is responsible for the very huge inflation in medical expenditures. Because again, if someone else is paying, you know, I'll have a stake, right? This is this is the mentality, and it just drives up costs all around. No one really has an incentive to rein in the costs in that kind of a system. Well, you know, we see this with the college tuition problem. Once yeah. you started getting all these loans, uh, the colleges just raised and raised and raised the tuition. It was far beyond what regular inflation was. And then the government taking them over, well, hey, why not? And having people go to college who frankly, had no intention of even completing. And here we have the same thing. Yeah, that's right. And the government gets involved and they start to subsidize things. Well, you get more of those things. And the uh, it's a great analogy because the quality of higher education has suffered enormously too. Very similar to what's happened to med- medicine. And when you don't have a truly competitive system, that's what happens. And of course, the college system which rewards seniority and tenure and all this stuff is uh, getting horrible, getting absolutely horrible. I mean, why would you send your kids to college where they get brainwashed into communist ideology at a very expensive uh, price tag? Well, I think at during our conversation we have today, I think we'll get into the brainwashing that I thought ended in college. And now we're finding out it's happening in medical school. But we'll get to that in a second. I have a question. You talk about third-party insurance and third-party with the government coming in. What do you do with people who are financially insecure? I mean, back in the day, I mean, even if you go all the way back to the American colonies, they believed in community support and volunteerism and 
they helped people out. There was a big community spirit, and that's how people who were having financial issues got things done, whether it be housing, medical care, whatever. And now that community spirit certainly seems to have been beaten out of us by the government saying, we'll do it. So what happens to people who can't afford care? Well, yeah, that's right. We there were always uh, charitable institutions, uh, religious organizations, and communities took care of those who had needs, and doctors provided care for free back in the old days, and were, were well known to. And the idea that only the rich could afford medical care was not really true. There were always doctors who would see patients pro bono, or at a very reduced rate. And again, medical care wasn't always that expensive. Uh, You know, doctor visits were not that much money. So you had to be really destitute to not be able to go to a doctor. Uh, But charities, I mean, this this the uh, poverty infrastructure that Medicaid and uh, Social Security insurance brought in uh, not disability, but, uh, you know, women's aid for what is it? The WIC program? Oh, uh-huh. with milk. All and... this stuff, all this stuff created a poverty poverty industry that then you couldn't get rid of. Of course, right? that, that would just you'd have to fund that forever. Uh, but it, it did supplant in a large degree private charity. So I, I don't think it was ever an issue until we made it one. Well, that's very interesting. You say that because it's certainly something. Uh, what what was that old expression I gave at the office when they come around wanting money? And that's how you feel. Well, the government said they're going to do it. So why should I? And, and it's almost something uh, that's lacking in our inner being. And, and, and it's on purpose to get us where we almost don't care about our fellow man. Mm-hmm. And then we can look at the government as the savior <laughs> rather than ourselves as the savior. And I hate seeing that happen to us where our humanity is kind of being drummed out of us. I agree. And that's the the statist agenda has always been to weaken the community, weaken the churches, weaken family. The family structure is what sustains civil society and sustains individuals. If you have an intact family structure with parents and grandparents and cousins and uncles and aunts, they're not going to let you drown, right? If you have trouble, they're going to help you. But that has been supplanted by government largesse, which is, of course, always comes with these horrible strings attached and always very low quality, ultimately. And think about how a family of four back in the 50s paid 2% or less of their income to the governments at all levels in, in the form of taxes. Now it's more like 40% or 50% when you include all the taxes. So there is no money left over really for charity. It's it's a very sad state of affairs. Well, it really is. And they kind of make it where charity isn't necessarily encouraged. We hear about, you know, these big money donors, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, and he's going to leave all his money and which is a wonderful thing, but it's the day-to-day helping in the community, which isn't always money. 
it's spending time at school or volunteering at church or whatever, going to an old folks home. All these things are, um, it, it just seems to be disappearing. And I was really pleased when my son was in high school that one of the things they did, it was actually a course in senior year, is you had to do some volunteer project. And this was a public school. It wasn't, you know, some fancy private school, but they were trying to instill that spirit of volunteerism. And doctors had it, as you mentioned, that doctors saw patients for free, but hey, now it's fraud if you take Medicaid and then you don't charge the person. And, you know, they've made it so difficult that all the doctors are just towing the line. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I When I was down at St. George's in Grenada, I was on the admissions committee for a couple of years. And it's obvious that they are looking to select individuals, not not only who are, by the way, not all that inquisitive, sadly, or all that brilliant anymore, but they're looking to select individuals who show that they are altruistic. So this community service thing has sort of become a requirement. In fact, there was all, there was something on the application where they asked you to list community service that you did. And I argued against it because I, 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 told, I said, look, you have to have a certain level of uh, financial comfort in your family to be able to volunteer your time in, in, for community service. And if you have to work, let's say, a part-time job to get through school, why should, why should you be, be discriminated against uh, in your medical school application? It, you know, it doesn't really yeah. doesn't make sense. And that, by the way, is community service. Even though you're being paid, you're serving the community by working a job. So let's uh, get it. Well, that's the- very interesting because that's all part of the whole thing of having different kinds of folks. And if somebody is working their way through medical school, they're of value to the medical school anyway. And yeah, that's interesting making that a requirement, but certainly we want people to have that spirit of community. Right now, when we get back, we're going to kind of talk about what's some of the weird things that are starting to go on in medicine. And particularly, I want you to think about it over the break is this transgender thing. It's oh, really getting out of hand. Oh, yeah. So, We'll talk about that after the break. Sure. But for now, what I do want to talk about, because even though spring is here, we've still got colds and flus and COVID still running around. And I just like to talk about Cofix RX. We've talked about it before. It's a nasal spray, has vitamin D and xylitol and povidone iodine that, well, gee, think about it. Three years ago, our own Dr. McCulloch was talking about using iodine to help stop the COVID virus. Well, this compound, it stops all sorts of viruses. And you've got to think about it. Nothing's foolproof, but it's kind of like using the airbag in your car. 
you can reduce the impact that the virus has on your body. And remember, about 95% of the germs we get come through the nose. So by using this nasal spray, hopefully you can nip it in the bud and not get sick. And that's what we hope. One of the things I love about this product, it was invented in the USA and it's made in the USA. What could be better than that? So look on our page. There's a little button that says Cofix RX. Click it on and you can read more about it. And if it's something that seems like you would be interested in, and I hope you are, I use it. Buy some. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on all the fear-mongering, but deep down you try and minimize viral exposure and your risk of getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a pulvinone iodine nasal solution. I don't need to tell you just how powerful a nasal cleansing formula with xylitol, pulvinone iodine, and vitamin D3 for immune support could be. In fact, my attorney told me not to tell you. Google it and find out for yourself. Now, get yourself a bottle of American-made Cofix RX nasal solution. Let's get out and live again. CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Use coupon code out loud and get 20% off. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity, unlike other supplements that don't work. Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. Okay, well, we're getting back to the show again, and we're going to talk about this transgender. I call it a fad because something odd is happening in the, in the kids. There was some review of insurance claims and the number of children diagnosed with so-called gender dysphoria has tripled over the last five years and it's like why what is it that's different well we're going to talk a little bit about the medicine of it and what do you think about this whole issue dr Ammerling? There is so much wrong with this that it's hard to know where to begin. Yes, it's a fad at the level of the kids, you know, because they are on social media all the time. And if they get into these uh, chat groups and pages that talk about transitioning and gender issues, then they start to question if they're having a little bit of an identity issue in terms of their sexuality, as many adolescents do normally then they're going to start to perhaps say, well, maybe I was actually born the opposite, the wrong sex. I'm in the wrong body. And this kind of idea is getting uh, rewarded in in certain circles on these uh, websites and social media circles. So that that gives it an element of a fad. But what I find really horrific is that it is being pushed by a certain ideology because, of course, it's destructive of the family. It's destructive of uh, traditional norms. It's, it's destructive of the population 
right? If you sterilize uh, preteens, they're not going to reproduce. And uh, this underlying agenda of depopulation is always there. You know, the anti-humanist side of the leftist uh, movement is, is always there. So you always have to look for that. And there's no medical urgency to do anything, of course, because 90% or so of gender dysphoric preteens resolve their gender dysphoria by the time they finish adolescence. And this has been known for a long time. Dr. Paul McHugh, the leading expert at Johns Hopkins, seen more of these patients than anybody else, has this well, well documented. So to start uh, puberty blockers, uh, to counsel social transitioning, meaning a name change, dressing in like the opposite sex, and ultimately leading up to hormones and then you know the, the worst of the worst, mutilating surgery, destroying your breast, destroying your genitals, is really horrific and completely unethical from any medical perspective. And I am very happy to call out doctors doing these procedures or encouraging preteens to do this kind of stuff as being grossly unethical. Well, how I just don't understand how doctors have bought into this idea. And so many people give the analogy if somebody walked in and said to cut off my leg, would you cut off the leg? Because that is a psychological issue. What is it called? Body dysmorphia, where and, and then there's other psychological issues, people who want who want to be paralyzed or whatever. And so much of it is traced back to they want attention. They want to be different. And it seems like this gender thing is is very similar to that. And I I I don't get it. I who have you talked to? Do you know anybody who actually does these surgeries and how they justify doing it? I don't. I don't <laughs> You're thinking, know. thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd be happy to uh have a long conversation with them. Uh, you know, I think that it's not too late for them to change course and 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 go back against it. Uh there are so many testimonials now of detransitioners. There was an article recently that got a lot of play from a, uh, not a trans, but a, I think a homosexual person who was working in this industry counseling teens. And she actually, you know, became a whistleblower because she saw all sorts of awful things. The kids being pressured, parents being pressured, using this lie that you, you know, there's a huge suicide risk if you don't allow them to transition. That is totally nonsense. And uh, being, being, having their real psychopathology ignored. I mean, a lot of these kids have issues such as maybe their autistic, autistic spectrum disorder. That's very common. Maybe they've been abused as kids. Maybe they just need to talk to a friendly, empathetic person who will help guide them through their troubled teens. And that is all that most of these kids need. And they're not getting it. They're instead being pushed to make irreversible decisions regarding hormones, which can block their fertility permanently uh, and disfiguring, mutilating surgery. You know, there is a basic tenet of medical ethics that you do not remove a healthy functioning organ. And so this is completely against that, not to mention the do no harm 
uh, precept that you, we are grossly violating by by giving these people harmful the harmful drugs and surgeries. Well, one of the things that's stunned me since the study came out of my alma mater, University of California, San Francisco, and researchers there, this is so stunning to me. They looked at mastectomies performed on girls, get this, age 12 through 17 at the Kaiser Hospital System. And that is all over California, 56 different regions. And the as that's called gender affirming mastectomies increase 13 times. Oh my God. From 2013 to July, 2020. And when I read that, I was stunned. I mean, can you imagine doing a mastectomy on a 12 year old? I mean, when you look at court cases and 12 year olds aren't considered old enough to make decisions for themselves. They can't get tattoos. How can you can't get a tattoo, but you can get a mastectomy at 12. I, and, and again, what doctor is doing this? And there, there was a uh, video of a woman at Vanderbilt. And of course the video is no longer available per usual where she's talking about the money to be made from these things. And that even makes it worse to think that money would drive a doctor to do this. Maybe it wouldn't be the first thing, but you think, well, this is a niche I can get into. And I'm wondering whether that's part of it. And it makes me embarrassed to be a doctor to think if somebody's thinking that way. I, I share the sentiment completely, and it is a big money maker for these centers, for these hospital centers and medical schools that are pushing it, like Vanderbilt and others. And it's a billion-dollar industry. It's outrageous. It's an outrageous thing. And I always come down on the role of doctors, because that's all that we really can have a say about as doctors. What Doctors should be pushing back against stuff that is this unethical. And that's why we're out there talking about this. This is why AAPS just came out with a a position statement on this topic of saying that it's unethical, it's contraindicated, ethically, medically. There is just no rationale for it. Let these kids be kids. Let them go through their maturity. Let them get out of adolescence at least. And then maybe wait until their brains fully mature at age 25 in some and that let them make an informed decision. Otherwise, they don't know the facts. They can't possibly understand the implications of destroying your ability to reproduce, of actually having satisfying, intimate relations with a, with a member of the opposite sex. All these things will not be available to them. They don't really understand how big a deal it is. They just want the approval from their peer group of being uh, you know, a, a transitioner. But go listen to some of the detransitioners. I, I have become a big follower of Chloe Cole. I'm sure you know who she mm-hmm. is. This wonderful young girl who at age 12 or 13 was encouraged to transition. I think a few years later, she ended up getting a double mastectomy and then she said, you know, this is not for me. I'm a girl and I want to be a girl. 
and now of course she never breastfeed. I mean, this is this is horrific. I mean, the Nazis were as bad, but not you know, but almost not as bad. I mean, this is so horrific. This mutilating stuff with these young kids, it must stop. It must well, stop. Do, do you want to hear something? I you know, I don't want to make you sick because we'll have have another segment of the show so you you i hope you're sitting down but this may be the only school i've read about but it could be happening in other medical schools at indiana university school of medicine they have a course called human structure for first year students and so they have a sex and gender primer teaching them how to use gender-inclusive language and to avoid words like male and female. They tell them that cervical cancer screening should be offered to people, not women, so they won't offend patients. And they're taught that gender is a social construct. This was stunning. It is. It is. Now, this has infiltrated medical education, and this is why we must really create new medical schools, because we cannot pretend that there is gender independent of biological sex. There is simply no scientific rationale for that concept. The gender fluidity came from a single unethical and ultimately fraudulent study of twin boys. One raised as a boy, one raised as a girl done by this guy, Professor Money, John Money, out of Johns Hopkins. And not only did he abuse these two boys when he, they would come for their checkups, but he lied about the results. And the boy who was transitioned never really mentally transitioned. She was, he was always unhappy and always remained a boy. And ultimately, when they found out about this whole deception, he uh, rebelled. A really a horrible story, but that is the basis of this whole gender fluidity concept, one fraudulent study. And that's what they quote and cite. There's nothing else. It's all anti-scientific bullcrap and completely unethical, and no ethical physician should be doing this at all. Well, I I hope people who are listening who might have friends or relatives who are struggling with this issue, be aware. And earlier before the show, Dr. Amerling and I were talking about California and how it seems to be infiltrating the minds of the nation. And in California, they passed a law where they will ignore jurisdictional issues when it comes to parents disagreeing about gender a surgeries or hormones. And so uh, they will just ignore court orders from another state. So basically making gender surgery sanctuary state. And we can't have stuff like this where the state just supplants parents. And as Dr. Amerling mentioned, of course, that's all part of a status plan to break up the family. And it's just one more thing. Right. Another brick in the wall. You know, that film, which I haven't seen, I'm afraid, I'm sorry to admit, Matt Walsh's film, What is a Woman? Based on that, uh, the Supreme Court candidate 
who who was asked that question and oh, yes. she couldn't answer it. Well, she and she said, "Well, I'm not a biologist." Well, doctors don't have that excuse. Okay, doctors study biology, a lot of it, and to to deny the objective reality that there are two genetically determined sexes, you are one or the other, is to be incompetent to be a physician, right? Well, if you I, cannot I answer that so. question, if you cannot answer that question, you should not be a physician, period. In the meantime, I just want to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. As you know, we are always a beat ahead. We've got our free apps on Apple and Android and Alexa, and you can hear it live every weekday at 5 with an encore at 11 and on iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning. The best part I like, since you don't have to be pinned down to a time, is the shows go direct to a podcast in 24 hours, and the episodes are on lots of podcast networks, Apple and Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart. Make it easy, bookmark americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. One of the things that's so great about Pulse is that it's a different doctor every night. I'm on on Mondays. Tuesdays, we have Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley. Wednesdays, we have Dr. Peter McCulloch and Malcolm Outloud. Thursdays, we have Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan. And Fridays, with epidemiologist Dr. Harvey Reich. And remember, Nurses Out Loud, they're on on Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. So we've got a lot of medical stuff out there for you. And I really appreciate you listening. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. Well, we know you because we are you. AmericaOutloud.com. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. The Wellness Company shares your values and fights for medical freedom. They put patients before profits and follow medical science, not political science like doctors on the left. Their chief medical board, which includes Dr. Peter McCullough, are the makers of the incredible American-made high-quality spike formula. If you worry about spike proteins, go to TWC.health and use promo code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount. Once again, that's TWC.health, promo code OUTLOUD. Before the break, I said that we talk about the other end of the spectrum and talk about what's happening with our elders. It's been in the news that Medicare Advantage, which well over half of seniors who are on Medicare um, have this, and basically it's an HMO for medical care. And 
people, uh, you see the ads for it on TV all the time. And you can get this and that and the other and dental and hearing, even though you have to pay extra for that. And less paperwork, all this. Well, it turns out with Medicare Advantage, it might have less paperwork, but it also has less care. And now there's a new wrinkle. I read an article in Stat Online. The magazine is called Stat, S-T-A-T. And the title of the article was Artificial Intelligence, How Medicare Advantage Plans Use Algorithms to Cut Off Care for Seniors in Need. And they told a story about an 85-year-old Wisconsin woman who had a shattered left shoulder and she had an allergy to pain medicine. The algorithm figured out that 16.6 days she'd be ready to leave the nursing home. On the 17th day, her Medicare Advantage insurer followed the algorithm, cut off payment for her care, concluding she was ready to return to the apartment where she lived alone. Even though the medical notes show that her pain was 10 on the scales, she couldn't dress herself, she couldn't go to the bathroom by herself, or even push a walker without help. It took a year for her to fight the denial, spend down her savings, and finally, fortunately, the judge ruled in her favor and she was reimbursed. But that's after a year. So there's two things that come up with this, algorithms and AI, and I'd like, doctor, you to tell me what you think about it. First, you know, one, care denier, denials and these prior authorizations and whatnot. And two, just algorithms in general, that these medical students are not being taught to think, but to use algorithms and the overuse of AI. So there you go. Have at it. Well, all right. Well, that's that's a handful. And I, <laughs> of course, you know, I have a lot to say about both, particularly the latter. But Medicare, uh, in a nutshell, is a disaster. Sadly, I'm on it now. But I did not get Medicare Advantage for good reasons. One of the things about Medicare that I observed in my during my career is that it encourages the overtreatment of seniors. There's no question about that. They get pushed into aggressive care, including unnecessary surgery, in my view, and medications that don't benefit them and actually may harm them. And why? Because they have this Medicare card. It's, it's that simple. And doctors and surgeons and interventionalists of all types love to see that Medicare card. Uh, which I have now, as I said, have one myself. Um, the over-medication of seniors is encouraged by Medicare. Part D, which is the drug benefit, opened the floodgates for seniors to be on 10, 15, 20 prescription drugs, almost none of which are guaranteed to, uh, are, 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 are helping them. They're almost all guaranteed to be harming them more than helping them. And this is one of our focuses at the wellness company. We're trying to de-prescribe and when I see someone who is 80 years old on a statin and a bunch of other medicines that they really don't need, I say, yes, let's get you off these drugs and get you onto a good diet. And you and you don't need drugs. When you're 80 years old, you should hardly need anything at all. 
And doctors just prescribe, prescribe, prescribe. And a lot of it is because someone else is paying once again. And Medicare Advantage has always been a ripoff. Your uh, uh, benefit being paid to these insurance companies who then act as a gatekeeper for you to access doctors. And even though Medicare Part B without Medicare Advantage is much less good than it used to be in terms of what they will pay doctors, you still are better off, in my view, getting just sticking with straight traditional Medicare Part B because you're going to have much more choice. And again, you shouldn't be on a million drugs. So you don't let them influence you with those bribes that all your drugs are going to be paid for. They won't, first of all, but they'll say they are. But you don't want that. You want to have a, access to a good doctor and leave it at that. And the use of AI and algorithms is what I have been pushing back against almost my entire career. Medicine is not something that is out, that is algorithmic. It is something that is individualistic. Everybody is different and everybody needs an individualized approach. And I would begin all my lectures down at St. George's with this uh, idea that if you're just gonna plug people into a formula, you don't need to be a doctor. Your front office person could do just as well. So if you wanna preserve your relevance as a medical doctor, you better start by taking a very careful history and try to figure out what's wrong with your patient and not just squeeze them into some diagnosis because they have a certain number or a certain lab results or a certain x-ray finding no, it's more complicated than that. And if you are not up to the task, do something else. Well, I, you know, <laughs> when you talk about taking a history, when I was in medical school, uh, gee, in, in the last millennium, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that we were taught that history taking was the most important thing. And I think the first step in ruining it were electronic medical records where it was sort of a box checking venture rather than a narrative. And you learn so much in the narrative listening to patients. And patients, I want you to take heed of this. Tell your doctor the story because there's so many times that something's going to pop up that you as a patient didn't even know that was a trigger for something happening to you. I can't tell you how many patients would say, oh, I was fine until my dog died or till my husband got sick or there's some sort of life episode that by talking to the patient and as a patient talking to the doctor that may end up diagnosing your problem. Yeah, it's really true. And the history is the most important part of the encounter. It is being heavily de-emphasized. I saw this myself in medical, in medical school. My teaching job was about teaching history. And I pushed back obviously heavily against that but this is this was the pattern they would introduce themselves and by the way the first question they would ask the patient how do you want me to address you so even then they're talking about the gender issue right they, they want to be sure they're getting the pronouns correct so that's a preoccupation right up front uh, by the way i've never asked that question in my entire career i probably hope, hopefully you haven't either uh, i call i would call a new patient you know mrs smith 
And yeah. if Myth Mrs. Smith said, oh, please call me Pearl, I right. I would say, okay, yeah. if that's what you want. But you start off formal and let the patient decide what they right. want. Right. Then they would go through a very cursory HPI. The HPI, for your listeners, history of present illness. And that is where the meat of your history is. And that's where you're going to get the diagnosis. So let's say, for example, someone comes in, they're complaining of a cough. Well, there are a whole bunch of questions you need to ask to try to nail down what that cough is. What is it from? Is it productive? Are you coughing up junk? What color is it? How long have you had it? Uh, uh, do you have a fever? Do you have any pain around? You know, you're trying to narrow it down. Is this a, a, a pneumonia? Is it, is it a sinus infection? Is it asthma? So there are all these questions that you need to ask to try to narrow down that diagnosis. So the students, before I got down there, they weren't learning this whole technique. So they would go through a formulaic list of questions, and then they would move on to the past medical history, the, the sexual history, which of course they never, they never omitted, never once. The, they would uh, move on to the social history, smoking and all this stuff. And I would tell them, look, that stuff is okay. You gotta get that information. But if you move on from your history of present illness without a firm or at least a good idea of what really is wrong with the patient, you better go back and ask a lot more questions. So that's how I was trying to teach them this whole technique. But before I got there, no one was really in informing them that that's how you really do a history. Well, it's kind of interesting because, you know, listening to you talk about this and listening to hearing that we're supposed to ask a bunch of questions, let's look at what's happened in medicine with uh, going back to our old friend, third parties, corporate takeover, where these big health systems have bought up doctors' offices, and the visits are so short that some people complain that the visits are short as seven minutes. Yep. How can you do a narrative in seven minutes? No, I know. And you're so right about the electronic medical record as being a huge catalyst for the destruction of the history and really the destruction of the patient-physician relationship, which is the cornerstone of good medical care, you know, it, it makes history taking a joke. And many doctors use a boilerplate uh, template that they just sort of maybe change one or two things on just to save time. And it creates this beautiful note you know, a two-page note. You could have spent five minutes on the history, but the computer then generates a two- or three-page note. And one of my colleagues at, a at an AAPS meeting likened this to a Potemkin village. <laughs> it's such a great analogy. You know, the Potemkin village were these fake cities that they would put up in Soviet Russia to fool tourists. So it looked like a normal Western city, but it was all just facades, Right? It wasn't, there was nothing behind it. And that's what these EMRs produce. They produce a Potemkin village. It's a, it looks like medicine is being done, but actually it isn't. Well, and it's interesting because I, you know, I look at them and see all the check boxes and the check boxes just don't tell the whole story. And 
it's amazing what you learn just sitting with the patient and talking. And like I say, sometimes uh, the answer to the problem is just sort of blurted out. I asked a patient once, had she ever fainted? And just worrying about if they were going to faint when you pop the IV in. And she said, mm, oh, yes, mm-hmm. when they told me my son would probably die. And then she looked at me and said, do you know, I've never said that out loud before. And she had had chronic neck pain and stuff. And it was almost like that holding that in, that that trauma of learning that her son might die, fortunately he didn't, um, was held in her neck. And she worked on that whole issue and her neck pain went away. So, yes. you know, it it's not mumbo jumbo and hokum to think that your emotions uh, have some effect on your health and in fact have a big effect on your health. And those EHRs, electronic health records or electronic medical records, sometimes just don't get the whole picture often don't and you raise such a great point the emotional content is so important and what is healing patients is that emotional bond with you the physician and you cannot get that if you're having a one-on-one relationship with your computer screen when you're supposed to be looking the patient in the eye and talking to them person to person and that is gone from medicine at this point and this is what we're trying to bring back via telemedicine, interestingly, but you can have good eye contact with telemedicine if you look into the camera and you can reassure patients and bond with them. And that is what they crave and that is what they need. And that is what ultimately heals them. It's not so much what you prescribe or de-prescribe in our case, but you're, you're taking the time to lend your, your heart and expertise to their personal medical problem that is what they need and want, and that's what heals them. Well, I think you have summed that up so well. And patients in their hearts, they know this. Some of them feel so trapped because they're in some of these systems where they don't even have their own doctor. They just see the internist, and it's whoever happens to be the person who's in the office that day. And this is what our medical care is turning into. And it's up to us, the doctors and patients. This is why we do some of these shows. So you'll know what's kind of going on under the covers there and speak up and, and demand your rights. And you don't have to be ugly. Just say, You know, if you came to see the doctor and they give you a physician's assistant and they're not going to let you see the doctor, say, I came to see the doctor and see what they say. Um, There's so many things. And just very politely, I want this and dot, 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 whatever it happens to be. And uh, the system has made it where they want to break up all your, they're called chief complaints into a new appointment for each chief complaint (laughs) rather than being able to say everything at once because obviously 
one of your problems coincides with the other. They're not separate. We're one body, one whole body. And as a patient, remember this. And certainly the good doctors will. Sometimes it's hard to find one, but they're out there. And like Dr. Ammerling said, it's all about the relationship. So, Marilyn, doctors who want to practice real medicine must, at this point, get out of the third-party system. Establish your own practice. Many doctors do it. It's not as hard as you think. This is what we have been pushing at AAPS from the beginning. This is why I wrote the Physician's Declaration of Independence, <laughs> to go along with the Patient Bill of Rights. We have the Physician Declaration of Independence urging doctors <clears throat> to get out of these third-party relationships, which constrain your ability to practice real medicine. And in fact, it really is, I think, unethical to have someone else pay for a patient's medical care. Uh, maybe, you know, a charitable donation here and there, but you don't want a third party responsible for medical care because then they can control that care. So for you to have an ethical relationship with your patient, you need to be third-party free. And by the way, that is the only way you can guarantee their confidentiality as well. Otherwise, you're sharing their data with your third party. Well, that's right. Well, on that note, can you believe it? Our hour is gone. And just for patients, if you're looking for a hash pay or third-party free doctor or um some other sort of direct pay practice, APSonline.org has a section for patients and you can kind of click that on and hunt around the website and see some of this information. And what is the website of your venture where you're the academic? What 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 is your title? The, I always mess I'm it up. I'm the chief academic officer, yeah. Uh, you know, I kind of run the educational part for our doctors, and that's been a lot of fun and interesting stuff. But yeah, it's the wellness company, TWC.health. Two of my eminent colleagues, uh, Dr. Reish and Dr. McCullough, are your partners there in America Out Loud. So we're well represented uh, on your program. So, so there you go. <laughs> You're in good company. Well, thank you for coming on the show, and we'll have to do this again. Anytime, anytime, Marilyn. Such, so, such a pleasure to talk with you, and hope to see you again soon. Okay. And for all the listeners, thank you for listening. We love having you on, whether you listen live or on the podcast, and I, if you hadn't heard, we do have the feature where you can email us questions and send them to americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. First names are fine. And uh, we'll get you an answer, whether it's to the guest or to the host. So whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.